our trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Oh, we are going to definitely be reveling in wrong think today. By the way, I have some help from some great sponsors to make this possible on a daily basis. They include Dixie Chiropractic. You can check them out at DixieChiro.com. HSLAmmo.com. SewingandQuiltingCenter.com. MonticelloCollege.org. LifesavingFood.com, as well as the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. So I got to warn you right up front, uh, I'm going to take a deep dive today into what's happening economically. And I don't know if you're like me. Sometimes I just feel better uh, pretending that there's really nothing that much going on. You know, I I look at the gas prices as I drive down the road and realize, oh, that's up another 10 cents from yesterday. And I can't ignore the little hitch that I get in my stomach every time I see another increase in the gas prices. I go grocery shopping and I look at uh, what, you know, $150 will buy compared to what $150 worth of groceries would buy you know, even just a few years ago. And it's daunting. You know, the, the economic news is is pretty intense, but we have some other things on top of that. I mean, we have, we have a political class in Washington, D.C. right now that is working very hard to paint roughly half the country as domestic terrorist extremists who almost succeeded in overthrowing the government and replacing it with a right-wing dictatorship and who are doing everything in their power to weaponize the laws and the systems of our government against anyone who is not in lockstep with them. That's daunting. We've got, uh, I think we're coming up fast on 100 food production facilities now that have either burned down, blown up, been shut down, or seen their their, uh, flocks of chickens culled to the tunes of millions upon millions of chickens and turkeys and other poultry. Oh, also the 10,000 cattle that mysteriously died in Kansas just a few days ago. Some real interesting uh, strain on the food supply. Now, I'm not trying to paint a picture like it's hopeless, but I think it's really important that we understand what is coming at us as well as what our options are. Because I don't think we can ignore our way into, well, it's going to work out somehow and everything's going to be great. I want to believe that. I would love nothing more than to just turn my eyes away from it and, uh, you know, there's there's nothing to see here, nothing to worry about. But my heart says, no, we've got to face this, and this means you and I have got to be grown-ups about it. We've got to be willing to acknowledge it, see it for what it is in the light of day, big as life, twice as ugly. But most importantly, we have to decide how we will approach this in terms of our personal character. Because when these kinds of crises come up, and they do, roughly every 80 to 100 years, there's a, there's a fourth turning that involves major overlapping crises, typically civic decay, war, economic upheaval. We saw it in the Great Depression and World War II. Hey, how long ago was that? Anyway, well, you yeah, see the point. Uh, we saw it in the Civil War and Reconstruction. How, how long ago was that from World War II? Hmm? Uh, the American Revolution and the founding period. You get the picture? This is a cycle of history, and we're passing through it. And the heavy lifting approaches, and you and I are 
either unfortunate, unfortunate or fortunate, depending on your point of view, we are among those who are going to have to face this and deal with it. Now, this doesn't mean things are hopeless, but we've got to be willing to face some hard facts. And so I'm just, I'm giving you this, this straight up warning right up front here. Going to be facing some really hard facts. I want to just share a couple of tweets with you, or just a couple of headlines from tweets that a friend sent me over the last few days. Here's one, let's see, a spiraling food crisis hits Sri Lanka as farmers abandon fields and inflation surges. They have no fuel. They have no fertilizer. They have no way of, of working their fields at this point. And, and the food situation in Sri Lanka is getting desperate. Here's another good one. Uh, let's see, the median American household needed 38.6% of their income to afford payments on a median-priced home. By the way, the chart of uh, the average mortgage payment over the last few years and what it's done. I mean, if you've, if you've bought a home recently, you understand exactly what I'm talking about. Here's another chart showing uh, raw materials fetching premium prices and demonstrating that those sanctions against Russia are working very well. Uh, well, for Russia, but, uh, you know, what can we say? This was a telling one. This is a tweet from uh, Disclosed TV on Twitter. And this is... Uh, this is from the Federal Reserve. Powell says rapid changes are taking place in the global monetary system that may affect the international standing of the dollar. There's a digital currency coming. Better be ready for it. Argentina's central bank hike uh, hikes its interest rates to 52%. And the one that I'm going to dive into right now, and this is this is why I'm warning you up front, it's this is some, some tough news, and it may be even hard to get your mind around, but we need to understand the engineered stagflationary collapse has arrived. This is an article from Brandon Smith on alt-market.us. The main reason I'm sharing this is because Brandon Smith has shown himself to be pretty on target in being able to catch the trends, describe them, and even prognosticate a bit. He's not trying to tell the future here, but he does describe, here's what happens when you enter a stagflationary collapse. He starts by saying, in my 16 years as an alternative economist and political writer, he says, I have spent around half that time warning that the ultimate outcome of the Federal Reserve's stimulus model would be a stagflationary collapse, not a deflationary collapse or an inflationary collapse, but a stagflationary collapse. And he says the reasons for this were very specific. Mass debt creation was being countered with more debt creation, while many central banks have been simultaneously devaluing their currencies through quantitative easing measures. On top of that, the U.S. is in the unique position of relying on the world reserve status of the dollar, and that status is diminishing. Now even the Federal Reserve is admitting this. So it was only a matter of time before the forces of deflation and inflation met in the middle to create stagflation. And in here, he links to an article that he wrote back in April of 2021. Infrastructure bills do not lead to recovery, only increased federal control. And this is what he stated in that article. Quote, production of fiat money is not the same as real production within the economy. Trillions of dollars in public works programs might create more jobs, but it will also inflate prices as the dollar goes into decline. So unless wages are adjusted constantly according to price increases, People will have jobs, but still won't be able to afford a comfortable standard of living. 
This leads to stagflation in which prices continue to rise while wages and consumption stagnate. Another catch-22 to consider is that if inflation becomes rampant, the Federal Reserve may be compelled or claim that they're compelled to raise interest rates significantly in a short span of time. And that means an immediate slowdown in the flow of overnight loans to major banks, an immediate slowdown in loans to large and small businesses, an immediate crash in credit options for consumers, and an overall crash in consumer spending. Now, you might recognize this as the recipe that created the 1981-1982 recession, the third worst in the 20th century. In other words, the choice is stagflation or deflationary depression. End quote. Now, this is Brandon Smith quoting himself, but he was on, he was on target here. He says, it's clear today what the feds have chosen, or what the Fed rather has chosen. It's important to remember that throughout 2020 and 2021, the mainstream media, the central bank, and most government officials were telling the public that inflation was transitory. Well, suddenly in the past few months, this has changed, and now even Janet Yellen has admitted that she was wrong on inflation. But he says, this is a misdirection because the Fed knows exactly what it's doing and always has. Yellen denied reality, but she knew she was denying reality. In other words, she was not mistaken about the economic crisis. She lied about it. As he pointed out in his article back in December, the Fed's Catch-22, taper is a weapon, not a policy error. Brandon Smith wrote, first and foremost, no, the Fed is not motivated by profits, at least not primarily. The Fed is able to print wealth at will. They don't care about profits. They care about power and centralization. Would they sacrifice the golden goose of U.S. markets in order to gain more power and full-bore globalism? Absolutely. Would central bankers sacrifice the dollar and blow up the Fed as an institution in order to force a global currency on the masses? There's no doubt. They put the U.S. economy at risk in the past in order to get more centralization. And that's the goal. And I know for some people, it's the attitude is, well, you, you right-wingers, you think every economic bump somehow signifies another attempt of the globalists to take over the world. But I have to wonder, how could a person not look around us and notice what's going on and, and willfully choose not to see what the World Economic Forum, among others, are saying right out in the open? This isn't just conspiracy theory. This is what they are planning and trying to do. But will they succeed? Stick around and find out. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Want to give a quick shout out here to... Dixie Chiropractic, that's Dr. Ward Wagner and his chiropractic practice. Specifically, this is a message for anyone who is dealing with pain, whether that pain is caused by car injuries or car accident injuries, rather, or maybe bulging herniated discs or even neuropathy. Dixie Chiropractic has treatments that can help you. And in fact, they have some wonderful intro specials for bulging herniated discs. You should check out the $99 intro special. That's two treatments plus massage. You can go to DixieCairo.com for more information. Or if you have neuropathy, here's the $99 CalMare treatment plus massage. Again, DixieCairo.com will get you hooked up with Dr. Wagner in his office. Just please mention that you heard this on this program. 
Back to uh, Brandon Smith's article. And, uh, you know, I hesitated before sharing this today because there is some really hard truth here. So much hard truth that I know people will say, geez, Brian, this is like pure fear. And, and I understand people may react with fear to what he's describing here. And I can't help that. It's, it's hard facts. It's difficult for me to face. I don't, want, I don't want to see the kind of changes that are clearly coming at us. But I think it's better to face them like grown-ups and to, to decide what can we do, how can we react, because we do have some control over that. So let's, uh, let's, you know, gird up our loins and take a deep breath and march forward, knowing that uh, we got to deal with this one way or another. So back to uh, Brandon Smith's article. The engineered stagflationary collapse has arrived. Here's what happens next. He says the Fed has known for years that the current path would lead to inflation and then market destruction. And here's the proof. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell actually warned about that exact outcome back in October of 2012. Quote, I have concerns about more purchases. As others have pointed out, the dealer community is now assuming close to to a $4 trillion balance sheet and purchases through the first quarter of 2014. I admit that it is a that is a much stronger reaction than I anticipated, and I am uncomfortable with it for a couple of reasons. First, the question, why stop at $4 trillion? The market, in most cases, will cheer us for doing more. It will never be enough for the market. Our models will always tell us that we're helping the economy, and I will probably always feel that those benefits are overestimated. And we will be able to tell ourselves that market function is not impaired and that inflation expectations are under control. What is to stop us other than much faster economic growth, which it is probably not in our power to produce? Powell also said, when it's time for us to sell or even to stop buying, the result could be, or the response could be quite strong. There's every reason to expect a strong response. So there are a couple of ways to look at it. It's about $1.2 trillion in sales. You take 60 months, you get about $20 billion a month. That's a very doable thing. It sounds like in a market where the norm by the middle of next year is $80 billion a month. Another way to look at it, though, is that it's not so much the sale, the duration. It's also unloading our short volatility position. End quote. Now, Brandon Smith says, as we all now know, the Fed waited until their balance sheet was far larger and the economy was much weaker than it was in 2012 to unleash the tightening measures. They knew the whole time, exactly what was going to happen. And it's no coincidence that the culmination of the Fed's stimulus bonanza has arrived right after the incredible damage done to the economy and the global supply chain by the COVID lockdowns. It's no coincidence that these two events work together to create the perfect stagflationary scenario. And it's no coincidence that the only people who benefit from these conditions are proponents of the Great Reset ideology at the World Economic Forum and other globalist institutions. The conclusion is inescapable. This is an engineered collapse that has been in the works for many years. Brandon Smith says the goal is to reset the world, to erase what's left of free market systems, and to establish what they call the shared economy system. This system is one in which the people who survive the crash will be made utterly dependent on government through universal basic income and one that will restrict all resource usage in the name of carbon reduction. According to the World Economic Forum, you will own nothing and you will like it. 
Now, he says the collapse is engineered to create crisis conditions so frightening that they expect the majority of the public to submit to a collectivist hive mind lifestyle with greatly reduced standards. This would be accomplished through universal basic income, digital currency models, carbon taxation, population reduction, rationing of all commodities, and a social credit system. The goal, in other words, is complete control through technocratic authoritarianism. And all of this is dependent on the exploitation of crisis events to create fear in the population. Now that economic destabilization has arrived, what happens next? Okay, well, he says, here are my predictions. The Fed will hike interest rates more than expected, but not enough to stop inflation. Brandon Smith says, today we're witnessing the poisonous fruits of a decade plus of massive fiat money creation. And we're now at the stage where the Fed will reveal its true plan. Hiking interest rates fast or hiking them slow. Fast hikes will mean an almost immediate crash in markets beyond what we've already seen. Slow hikes will mean a drawn-out process of price inflation and general uncertainty. Now, he says, I believe the, feds will, the Fed will hike more than expected, but not enough to actually slow inflation in necessities. There will be an overall decline in luxury items, recreation, commerce, and non-essentials. But most other goods will continue to climb in cost. It's to the advantage of the globalist to keep the inflation train running for at least another year or longer. In the end, though, the central bank will declare that the pace of interest rates is not enough to stop inflation, and they'll revert to a Volcker-like strategy, pushing rates so high that the economy simply stops functioning altogether. Then, he says, markets will crash, and unemployment will abruptly spike. Stock markets are utterly dependent on Fed stimulus and easy money through low interest rate loans. This is a fact. Without low rates and quantitative easing, corporations cannot engage in stock buybacks, meaning the tools for artificially inflating equities are disappearing. We're already seeing the effects of this now with markets dropping 20% or more. The Fed will not capitulate. They will continue to hike regardless of the market reaction. As far as jobs are concerned, Biden and many mainstream economists constantly applaud the low unemployment rate as proof the American economy is strong. But this is an illusion. COVID stimulus measures temporarily created a dynamic in which businesses needed increased staff to deal with excess retail spending. Now the COVID checks have stopped and Americans have maxed out their credit cards. There's nothing to keep left to keep the system afloat. Businesses will start making large job cuts through the last half of 2022. Next comes price controls. And he says, I have no doubt that Joe Biden and Democrats will seek to enforce price controls on on many goods as inflation continues. And there will be a handful of Republicans that will support the tactic. Price controls actually lead to a reduction in supply because they remove all profits and thus all incentive for manufacturers to keep producing goods. What usually happens at that point is government steps in to nationalize manufacturing, but this will be substandard production and at a much lower yield. And he says, in the end, supplies are reduced even further and prices go even higher on the black market because no one can get their hands on most goods anyway. From there, we have rationing. Yes, rationing at the manufacturing and distribution level is going to happen. So he says, be sure to buy what you need now before it does. Rationing occurs in the wake of price controls or supply chain disruptions, and usually this coincides with a government propaganda campaign against hoarders. 
Now, they'll hold up a few exaggerated examples of people who buy truckloads of merchandise to scalp the prices on the black market. Then, not long after, they will accuse preppers and anyone who bought goods before the crisis of hoarding simply because they planned ahead. He says rationing is not only about controlling the supply of necessities and thus controlling the population by proxy. It's also about creating an atmosphere of blame and suspicion with the public and getting them to snitch on or attack anyone that is prepared. He says prepared people represent a threat to the establishment, so expect to be demonized in the media and organized with other prepared people to protect yourself. Well, that got intense quickly, didn't it? I feel it too. We'll come back and we'll finish Brandon Smith's article. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here for HSLMO.com. There's a link in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Take you right to their website. You know, you want to talk about a good store of value? You betcha. Ammunition is a great way to do it. Doesn't go bad. You keep it stored, uh, you know, in a semi-protected place, you know, like not in a river somewhere. And it'll be there for years to come. Something you can barter. Something you can use to turn your money into skill. HSLAmmo.com is your supplier of high-quality, remanufactured, and new ammunition. Well worth your time. And they're a great sponsor, too, so I'd appreciate it if you would show them some love. All right, got to finish up this Brandon Smith article about to the engineered stagflationary collapse has arrived. Here's what happens next. And he talks about price controls. He talks about the market crashing, unemployment abruptly spiking, interest rates being hiked more than expected, but not enough to stop inflation. Price controls, rationing, and oh, yes, a targeted campaign against hoarders. Now, if you have done any kind of setting aside, you know, things for a rainy day, guess what? You are now going to be considered a hoarder. And that could be kind of ugly. I mean, if if you doubt this, I just would ask you, please think back to all of the pressure and all the negativity that was focused on the unvaccinated. If I hadn't seen it with my own eyes, I don't know that I would have believed, you know, that there would be a time where people would literally sit there and wish death on someone because you won't do what government's telling you to do. But I saw it. And chances are you did too. So don't underestimate what's going to happen when people start to get desperate. They're running out of money. They're seeing shortages in the stores. Maybe there are certain goods that they just can't get their hands on. They're going to want to take out that frustration on somebody else. That's you and me. You need to understand that uh, it's coming. And they will be manipulated by mass media campaigns and politicians grandstanding. Well, these hoarders, they're just making all of our lives more terrible. Beware. They're going to be playing to that mob mentality. So, Brandon Smith's advice is, he says, be ready, because it only gets worse from here on. Now, he says, look, it may sound like I'm predicting success of the Great Reset program, but he says, I actually believe the globalists will fall, or will fail, rather, in the end. But that's not going to stop them from making the attempt. 
Also, he says the above scenarios are only predictions for the near term, like the next couple of years. There will be many other problems that stem from these situations. And, and some of these problems you're starting to see right now in other countries. Sri Lanka is a good example. Naturally, food riots and other mob actions will become more commonplace. Perhaps not this year, but by the end of 2023, they will definitely be a problem. This will coincide with the return of political unrest in the U.S. as leftist factions encouraged by globalist foundations demand more government intervention in poverty. At the same time, conservatives will demand less government interference and less tyranny. At the bottom, the people who are prepared might be called a lot of mean names, but as long as we organize and work together, we will survive. Many unprepared people will not survive. Understand that the economic conditions ahead of us are historically destructive. There is no way that serious consequences can be avoided for a large part of the population, if only because they refuse to listen and take proper steps to protect themselves. So he says the, den- the denial is over. The crash is here. Take, it's time to take action if you have not done so already. Now, granted, that is, that's hardcore. I mean, that is... That's scary stuff to consider. And I don't tell you this because I'm thinking, boy, this is going to make me popular. It's not. There are people right now who are cussing my name for even bringing such a thing up. But I'm telling you this is your friend. We have got to be aware of what's coming, face it squarely, and uh, prepare as best we can. From here, I want to segue into the controlled demolition of the economy. This is a report from uh, James Corbett from the Corbett Report. He says, in case you haven't noticed, the wheels are falling off the global economy right now. And we've all started to feel the pinch of supply chain disruptions and rising energy costs and economic uncertainty and inflation, not to mention stagflation and shrinkflation and deflation. But he says this past week has really hammered home the extent of the crisis we're facing. And it seems Every single day brings with it the news of some fresh five-alarm financial fire. Just for example, the Dow is sinking, the loonie is falling, Japan is cracking, global stocks are plunging, eurozone inflation is spiking, the Fed is hiking, builders are slashing, crypto is crashing, treasuries are tanking. And that's just this last week. Now, James Corbett says, as I'm sure you've seen, there have been many, many such stories circulating in the financial press in recent months all touting similarly bleak numbers. But he says it's important to keep in mind that these numbers are just that, numbers. The real question is what exactly these numbers mean. So he says today let's answer that question by drilling down on the narrative behind the numbers and discover what that story tells us about the bars of the financial prison that are locking into place around us. First he starts with what he calls the confidence trick. And says, as I have long argued, the global financial system and the monetary order that system is predicated on is a confidence trick in the most literal sense of that word. And this has always been so in the age of fiat currency. Witness, for example, the full faith and credit verbiage of the U.S. Treasury and others to describe the dollar's backing. But it's especially so in the last couple of decades of central bank chicanery. So what does it mean to say that the financial system is a confidence trick? Well, to understand that, you have to go back to the birth of the modern monetary system in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire in 1944. Now, he actually did a podcast episode on this, and he links to it. The Bretton Woods Agreement required signatory countries to peg their currencies 
to the U.S. dollar, which itself was convertible to gold bullion at $35 an ounce. The idea was that in the post-war era, currencies would once again be backed by gold by way of the dollar. In short, the entire monetary order was to be based on the world's confidence in the U.S. government's ability to keep its spending in check and not renege on its promises to pay its creditors in gold whenever they asked for it. But don't worry, everyone. Uncle Sam double-dogged Pinky swore that he wouldn't abuse the exorbitant privilege that comes with being the issuer of the world's reserve currency. Then along came the Cold War, and the Korean War, and the Vietnam War, and the nuclear arms race, and the rise of the military-industrial complex, and the birth of the cradle-to-grave Great Society, Nanny State, and a concomitant rise in public debt and a negative balance of payments. Some countries began to wonder if maybe, just maybe, the U.S. government didn't actually have enough gold in its vaults to cover all of its paper promises. But when French President Charles de Gaulle sent the French Navy across the Atlantic to politely ask Uncle Sam to convert France's dollar holdings to gold, President Nixon responded by closing the gold window and formally ending the Bretton Woods system. From that point on, no one could pretend that the monetary order was anything but a confidence trick. In the floating exchange rate system that developed in the wake of the Bretton Woods destruction, fiat currency is measured against fiat currency in a house of cards that only remains standing because, like the deluded subjects of the emperor in Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tale, people have been taught not to ask whether the emperor dollar is really wearing any clothes. So it's no surprise then that post-Bretton Woods era has been defined by a series of increasingly brazen attempts by the financial elite to cash in on the public's gullibility. There was Kissinger's brokering of the petrodollar system by which the Saudis price oil in dollars and launder those dollars back through the American financial system. There was the Black Monday stock market crash of 1987, which led to the creation of the Plunge Protection Team, a group of high-ranking banksters and government officials that admittedly works to rig the stock market at the behest of the oligarchs. And there was Greenspan's housing bubble in the early 2000s, which led to the global financial crisis of 2008, and which in turn was papered over with a jobless recovery and the normalization of central bank intervention in the markets. And now here we are at the end of the longest bull run in history. What could go wrong? With the, sla- with the wage slaves still being asked to worship the stock market and pretend that it isn't commonly understood that the markets are manipulated, that the financial press now admits the markets are a sham, and that the central banks have engineered this collapse. But the tide of the last 80 years of monetary history is turning. People are finally waking up to the fact that the emperor is indeed naked, and many are finally questioning their confidence in the system that the central bankers have created. So now we have this engineered crisis of confidence. James Corbett says that the entire economic order is one giant confidence game will come as no surprise to any of his regular readers or anyone who's been paying attention to such matters. But what is surprising is that the mainstream financial press aren't even attempting to hide this fact anymore. The Bezos Post frames its coverage of the inflation crisis as a matter of the public losing faith in the Fed. Famed billionaire investor Bill Ackman is calling for aggressive Fed rate hikes to, quote, restore confidence in the markets. Even Fed Chair Jerome Powell himself admits that what's concerning to the bankers isn't price inflation itself, but people's belief in the system, noting that the really critical question is making sure the public does have confidence that we have the tools to fight inflation. 
It is a con game, isn't it? We'll come back to James Corbett's explanation. Just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a shout out here to SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. By the way, you don't just have to visit their website. Actually, if you live in southern Utah, you can swing by their brick-and-mortar business located at 779 South Bluff Street in St. George, Utah. Anything you need, sewing, embroidery, quilting-related, they've got it. Entry-level machines start at about $200 or less. You can uh, go the sky's the limit when you get up to the really top-end embroidery and long-arm quilting machines. But here's the cool thing. Sewing and Quilting Center will... Give you classes how to use your machine, how to how to get the most out of your machine. They'll teach you how to use it. They'll service your machines. They'll sell you all the supplies that you need. And you get to meet some really cool people in the process. If you haven't checked them out yet, you can go to sewingandquiltingcenter.com. There's a link in my show notes. Or just stop by their store if you happen to be in St. George, Utah. So I'm sharing this article from James Corbett from the Corbett Report, The Controlled Demolition of the economy, the world economy. And he's talking about this engineered crisis of confidence where really what the the Fed is trying to do is make sure that the public has confidence in them to fight inflation. My friend, they are the ones causing the inflation. So, um, you know, beware how deeply you place your confidence in them. Corbett says, indeed, that by this point, no one can deny that the faith which sustained the global economic con con game for so long is faltering. When the financial order was putting food on their families' tables, few were inclined to question the status quo. But now that the cost of putting food on their table is skyrocketing, many have no choice but to question that status quo. And while this loss of confidence may or may not be surprising to Jerome Powell or other mid-level functionaries of the con game, it's certainly not surprising to the string pullers at the bank for international settlements. That's the central bank of central banks, identified as the apex of financial control, by Carol Quigley in his book, Tragedy and Hope, who have been warning of the inevitable result of this central bank-driven quantitative easing madness time and time again for years. Corbett says it would be the height of naivete, however, to believe that the people at the very top of the pyramid of economic power could foresee the collapse of this system and yet do nothing to prepare for it. In truth, of course, the BIS and other financial elite are not sitting on their hands wondering what to do about this crisis of confidence, Quite the contrary. They're egging it on. The various failures, in quotation marks, that we're seeing in the markets right now are not the mere, are not mere happenstance. They are problems that are either being created or worsened by deliberate action. Inflation isn't coming out of nowhere. It's the perfectly predictable result of central bank interventions. The supply chain is not breaking down for no particular reason. It has been shut down by government decree. Food prices aren't rising because farmers are suddenly choosing to ask for more money. They're rising because governments are carefully crafting the conditions for a food apocalypse. No, what we're experiencing is not a spontaneous economic collapse. It is the controlled demolition of the economy. But why? What reason would the powers that shouldn't be have for destroying the very confidence game they've been running for the better part of a century? Well, it's because they have a solution in mind. 
problem, reaction, solution. That's the Hegelian dialectic. (coughs) Excuse me, that the financial elitists who have worked so assiduously to build up a world order would then turn around and contribute to the destruction of that order is only puzzling if we think that they're planning on continuing the current status quo forever. But they're not. So they can clear the way for the new economic world order. They first must destroy the old one. So Corbett says, imagine that you signed a 99-year lease on some prime lower Manhattan office towers. Now imagine that those towers were consistently under-occupied and going to require $200 million of asbestos removal in order to bring them up to code. Finally, let's also imagine you had the foresight to make sure your insurance explicitly included the right to rebuild anything you want on that land in the unlikely event of the tower's complete destruction. In such a scenario, you just might make the calculation that it's in your interest to destroy the towers yourself and blame the act on some Muslim boogeyman, you know, hypothetically speaking. Similarly, if you were in a position of power over the global monetary order and wanted to completely rebuild that order from the ground up to give you and your cronies complete control over every transaction taking place on the face of the planet, then there may come a time when you calculate that it's in your interest to begin a controlled demolition of the economy. Not being part of the financial elite, he says, I obviously can't say for certain whether or not that determination has been made. I don't know how much time we have before the current order collapses altogether or whether the controlled demolition of the economy has even started in earnest yet. After all, back during the Lehman collapse of 2008, he says, I could hardly have conceived that the central banksters were going to be able to kick the can down the road for several more years with quantitative easing and negative interest rates and other, <laughs> excuse me, transparent financial charlatanry. Charlatanry. He says, it's certainly possible that the con men who've been running this con game for so many decades have a few more tricks up their sleeves to keep the zombie economy limping along for some time. But he says, what I do know because I've covered it in these pages just last month, is just about every single central bank in the world is now actively pursuing the implementation of a central bank digital currency, CBDC. I know that by the end of the decade, if not much sooner, we are going to see country after country adopting and foisting retail CBDCs on their citizens with the intent of tracking every transaction in the economy in real time. And finally, he says, I know that an altogether new monetary instrument is unlikely to be adopted by the public, absent some compelling reason, like a hyperinflationary crisis in the old monetary instrument. So putting all these facts together, it stands to reason that the financial order we've known our whole lives is slated for destruction, and its days are numbered. It is in light of this knowledge that I believe we should be interpreting the current economic crisis. Now, he says, it's important to understand how nicely the pieces of the broader political, geopolitical, social, financial puzzle fit together and how all of the events of the last two years bring those pieces together. The biosecurity rollout necessitates vaccine passports. The vaccine passports introduce the digital ID. The digital ID provides the infrastructure for the CBDCs. The CBDCs provide a mechanism for enforcement as a social credit system and or carbon credit system. To see these events as separate events unfolding haphazardly and coincidentally is to miss the entire point. The demolition of the economy is just an excuse for the implementation of the next stage of the agenda, just as COVID-19 was an excuse for this stage of the agenda. James Corbett says, in short, 
the all-out economic assault being waged on the free peoples of the world right now is just another battlefield in the all-encompassing fifth-generation war we find ourselves fighting against the global elitists. And he says, and just as I noted in my recent guide to fifth-generation warfare, our ability to defend ourselves from this assault, let alone win the battle, is dependent upon knowing that we are in a war at all. We must be able to lay the cards out on the table for our friends and family as clearly as possible. The economy is being destroyed on purpose. It is being done by the same con men who created the very system that is being destroyed. And it's being done to consolidate complete control over the economy right down to our ability to buy and sell. In effect, he says, we're standing at ground zero of the global economy, watching the squibs going off in the twin towers of the financial globals, the global financial system. Now, we can either stand here mesmerized by the pyrotechnics of the explosions, or we can fall back, regroup, and take the necessary steps to lessen our dependence on this collapsing system and to expand and reinforce the counter-economy that will be our only lifeline as the bars of the new economic prison are closing in around us. But he says, whatever the case, make your choice quickly. There is little time left for deliberation. Now, I'm guessing because you are a listener to this program, you're probably going to be a little more open to the idea that, wow, that's, uh, that's a possibility. I'm not telling you, oh, this is fact, and you better believe what James Corbett is saying. In my opinion, I think he's connected the dots pretty well here, but that doesn't mean you have to think that too. What I'm asking you to consider, more than anything, more than agreeing with me or agreeing with James Corbett, is that if there is in fact... And a, uh, if we're facing the destruction of our current financial system, whether it's engineered or whether it's just some horrible misunderstanding and totally accidental, you better get your house in order. You better have something on which you can fall back and have other systems upon which you can depend. Unless, of course, you are okay with being herded into the corral with everybody else your identity becoming a government-sponsored privilege, a number, if you will, and your dependence upon government being cemented in the form of a central bank digital currency, tracking of every dime you make or spend, social credit scores to make sure that your attitudes are in line with what those in power want them to be. Or maybe you should be spending some time helping to build the alternative systems for those who don't want to be a part of such a scheme. Quite a choice, wouldn't you say? This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. And I hope you uh, hope you got your big boy or big girl pants on today. <laughs> we are covering some tough topics just because we live in some really crazy times. But I want you to know we are up to the challenge. Times may be getting tougher, but uh, we were put here for a reason. 
As my friend Lavoy Finnicum used to say, we were born for this time. I don't think that was just a slogan to, you know, give us confidence because we really have no control over everything. I think there's something to that. And I believe that uh, you and I have things to do that uh, very well could portend that our greatest days are ahead of us. But there's no doubt in my mind, things are about to get much more difficult for everybody. Everybody, that is, who isn't a, uh, a member in good standing of the World Economic Forum or, or some of these other globalist groups. I've got some great sponsors who make this program possible. I want to give a quick shout-out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. And I want to recommend them. If you are in the process of trying to secure a home loan, whether it's a VA loan or a traditional loan, maybe even a reverse mortgage, if you are within the state of Utah or Idaho, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, these are the ones you want to talk to. You can call Heather at 435-703-4522. Her NMLS ID is 715-386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So I thought we would start with... uh, A quick take on how the media fueled the COVID-19 lockdowns. I have become a big fan of the Brownstone Institute, brownstone.org, in that they have some of the best analysis and some of the best commentary on not just, uh, you know, the lockdowns, but also the vaccines. And, oh boy, you want to talk about uh, some, some really interesting stuff, you know, who knew? that a term like sudden adult death syndrome, SADS, would suddenly become the norm. And and people within uh, the, the medical establishment would, would be trying to convince us, oh, no, this has always been a thing. Although you'll be hard-pressed to find any reference to it, you know, prior to uh, the last year or two. I mean, it's just, it's very strange. And yet uh, they're they're ready now to start pushing these vaccines on even tiny children, right down to infants. We live in a very interesting time. And if you want to have a better understanding of what the, what the medical establishment is up to, what the political establishment is up to, what's happening economically, the Brownstone Institute really does a great job. But this article in particular really grabbed me. This is a very lengthy article by Michael Betris, How the Media Fueled the Lockdowns. And I know that I complain long and loud about the media and their... Their, uh, their proclivities to go with anything that's authoritarian and to report everything that they report in such a way that, it, of course, it justifies whatever the people in power are doing. Of course, they're just trying to do their best for us. But this is some of the best analysis and documentation that I've seen in how the media played into panicking the public and getting people to embrace something that would come back to bite us in such a terrible way. Michael Betras says, COVID-19 triggered lockdowns around the world never before seen. Isn't the worst pandemic the world has seen? It isn't the worst pandemic the world has seen. So why were government interventions so swift, he asks? Well, there are really two reasons. One, broadband and laptops. Had there not been ways to continue working for the governments and and remote learning to bridge education, we'd have not seen lockdowns beyond May of 2020. But the second reason tied to the first reason, is the media. The majority of the media coverage shamed any lockdown dissent and even drove it. Those that stood up to that, select states and even countries, faced immense pressure from global and national media. Now he says, within the United States, the role of the media within government policy is to critically analyze, 
to keep them honest. With COVID-19, open debate about risks and government interventions was shut down. For the first 16 months of the pandemic, not only was the origination of COVID-19 not up for debate, it was suppressed and censored by major platforms like YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. As of June 2022, it's considered more likely than not to have originated from the Wuhan lab, something even the World Health Organization is now investigating. Reopened schools in 2020, the media put so much pressure to keep them closed that few politicians thought critically and acted to keep them open. Even with that, remote options were available and employed, fracturing education for a year and a half. In some states, schools were closed for 17 months. Now again, he goes into a number of different examples of how the media became this driving force in spreading panic and getting people to embrace these lockdowns. He says social media has become the primary news source for more Americans than any other medium. Imagine if COVID-19 struck in the 1980s before cable television. Back when primary news sources were network news, major newspapers like the New York Times and Washington Post, and of course, local newspapers. Well, those mediums covered COVID-19 in 2020 as if it were a Category 5 pandemic and drove opinion that schools and restaurants should be closed and everyone should be masked, perhaps even at home and in the car. They constantly reported hospitals were lined up over capacity with sick and dying patients. However, we'd be looking around our communities and not seeing much activity. We'd know it was out there, but we'd see hospitals were empty and few we knew were getting sick. Remember, other than the four to six weeks when a community got hit, you wouldn't know COVID-19 was a pandemic. Outside those surge periods, doctors would have just assumed it was a weird or strong flu or something. The symptoms were similar to the flu, just worse if you were vulnerable enough to be hospitalized. If COVID-19 struck communities like it was a few-week hurricane and left a and left a, it left a vacuum of emptiness in hospitals. Now, he points out that nearly all the major news media outlets were absent any COVID-19 information suggesting that the risk didn't support the lockdowns. In fact, uh, Fox's, Fox News's, Fox News's primetime shows uh, reported on this often. Newsmax and One American News did too, but their viewership was relatively low, less than half a million viewers combined. That left 99% of America without a view from the mainstream media that maybe the lockdowns weren't the best path. And nearly all the data to counter lockdowns originated with Twitter users. It started largely with Alex Berenson's constant pouring of data to counter the models that triggered the lockdowns. Berenson began appearing on Fox News Weekly in April 2020. Other Twitter users like the ethical skeptic, don't laugh, he stays anonymous, but the guy's a genius, and contributors to Rational Ground provided nearly all hardcore data. So if Twitter didn't exist, it's hard to imagine where data to to support stopping lockdowns would have come from. Hold your thoughts on the mention of Fox News if you're not a conservative. We need open thought and debate on something as huge as worldwide lockdowns. But he says it was a sad state of journalism that Fox News was the only major media company to offer this, though by the summer of 2020, the Wall Street Journal did some quality analysis on the lockdowns. Most media outlets were very selective on reporting on the lockdowns. Now, from here... He goes into where we get the news, breaks down the monthly visitors to the various news sources, social media, talks about Facebook and how it's become a prime source of information for people, YouTube as well, Twitter, and then connects the puzzle pieces 
He says, you know, history will not remember the lockdowns as a proportionate response. This isn't about freedom of speech. It's it's about healthy debate on policies that have enormous consequences. And that's why media bias supporting mask mandates and school closings and closed restaurants and the rest of the interventions was so devastating. COVID-19 was unlike other controversial political issues like gun control or climate change. Everyone had the same starting point and the information was on a level playing field. But in this one instance, more than any other, we saw how enormous the power of the media is in influencing people's opinions and the effect that that had on policy. Media coverage out of the gate condemned any thinking that closed schools were a bad idea or that open schools were not a risk. Or the idea that face masks did not work, it was condemned. And even things like criticizing closing indoor dining, the point is there was no open debate. Now I'll leave it to you to discover the rest of this article for yourself. It's really fantastic. The media playbook that was followed... You know, attributes economic fallout not to lockdowns, but to the virus. It deliberately confused readers about the difference between tests, cases, and deaths. It never focused on the incredibly obvious demographics of COVID-19 deaths. And it dismissed any alternative to lockdown as crazy or unscientific or cruel, while acting as if Dr. Fauci speaks for the entire scientific community. And above all, the media playbook was to promote panic over calm. You want to see how all the pieces fit together? This will take you probably a good hour or better to read through. And there's a lot of links to follow as well. But if you want to be truly informed on this subject, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's linked in my show notes, which you can access at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you'd like to subscribe to my show notes, I think you'll find them well worth your time. Not because I have so many interesting things to say, but I really have some great resources that I draw from. And I can connect you with those resources to the point where you won't even need me. You're going to outgrow me quick enough and you'll be off and running under your own power. and, And I will be proud of you for doing so. I don't want to build a massive, you know, number of followers. What I want to do is help find people who are leaders and put them on the path to that leadership so that they quickly can outpace me and run swiftly, helping to uh, do whatever it is that uh, their leadership requires. I know it's kind of a weird business model. Basically, I'm trying to make myself obsolete, but I'm trying to make myself obsolete by persuading you that you can think for yourself You can weigh these things for yourself, and you definitely can be your own fact checker. Wanted to spend a little bit of time uh, just talking about the January 6th narrative. And to me, the, the key here is that the danger in this narrative is that anyone who questions the sanctity of the 2020 election or questions what happened on January 6th is being equated with some kind of a dangerous, violent extremist and the, they're, they're probably the ones who would have, would have uh, instilled a dangerous right-wing dictatorship had that, uh, had that insurrection not failed. 
Now, look, I wasn't there at the Capitol. It's very clear there was uh, there were clashes that were going on there. There was unrest that was going on. But to see the political class circle its wagons and and, and put on this televised passion play that uh, portrays them as victims and anyone who disagrees with them as somehow malevolent monsters as they weaponize every aspect of government against those of us who do not agree with them. It's a pretty scary thing. Like scary enough that you have to wonder, what are they thinking? You know, if, if by some chance the midterm elections really do carry some kind of a red wave and sweep a lot of these people out of power, are they desperate enough to try to take some preemptive action? I mean, one can only wonder. And the sad thing is, on both sides, you've got people who are, are just terrified. Well, everything's so weaponized. If we don't destroy them, they're going to destroy us. And I think what we're seeing put in place here is uh, we're, we're building a self-fulfilling prophecy where the left acts like we've got to get the right before they can get us. And sadly, I'm seeing people on the right who are developing that same kind of mindset. We've got to get in power this coming fall, and we've got to arrest everybody in power. You can see where that would lead to some desperation on both of their parts. But let's talk for a moment about the show trial and Liz Cheney's dyspepsia. Great article here from Michael Lesher. This is from offguardian.org, another one of those excellent sources of information. If you want to get a really solid take, from people who aren't bothered to be, you know, chanting partisan slogans and carrying water for this political party or that political party, highly recommend Off Guardian. So, Michael Lesher says, not every piece of political theater openly presents itself as political theater. But he says, these aren't ordinary times. Heaven knows, and the show trial that goes under the popular name, the January 6th Committee, has been nothing if not consistently over the top. So it was appalling Not really a shock to note that when the committee's ringmasters got down to serious public business on June 9th, the first thing they did was to premiere their own movie. And what what a movie! Perfectly timed to monopolize mainstream media for the evening, the committee's production turned out to be, quote, an expertly curated multimedia experience unlike any congressional hearing in history, with revelatory clips from the committee's interviews with Jared Kushner, Ivanka Trump, and Bill Barr, never before seen in brilliantly edited footage of the rioters, and a wrenching live interview with a Capitol Police officer injured in the melee. Now, end quote, by the way. He says, I'm quoting word for word from Jody, from Jody Rudoran who used to recycle Israeli propaganda for the New York Times and now is, poetic justice, reduced to gushing about a multimedia experience that, if offered at a genuine inquest, not a show trial aimed at stifling political dissent, could only have been reported as the national disgrace it actually was. But grab your popcorn, folks. A movie is a movie. When has Trump baiting ever been hampered by rules of evidence? Who needs facts when you can watch doctored testimony on a big screen? And why ask about the legal definition of insurrection, a question that makes nonsense out of the committee's putative mission, when you can sit back and enjoy brilliantly edited footage of the first coup that had to be synthesized in a cutting room? And why even think about the only violent death that occurred during all the trouble, that of Ashley Babbitt, an unarmed protester shot dead by a cop for no apparent reason? when you can hang on every word of that wrenching interview with a different police officer who was prepared to say exactly what the committee, Andrew Doran, wanted to hear. 
So much for the June 9 teleplay. And yet the worst part, at least for, for Michael anyway, was that none of it was really a surprise. If anything had remained of the committee's bona fides after it wasted 10 months on procedural ballyhoo, who's getting the next subpoena? Will he appear? Let's make some headlines. The last vestige of its credibility was trashed by the committee members themselves as they stormed political TV talk shows three days after airing their feature film to deliver their prearranged verdict against the former president. According to Representative Jamie Raskin, Trump was guilty because he said he had won the election when he should have known he hadn't. He had to know, had to have known he was spreading a big lie, Raskin solemnly informed CNN State of the Union on June 12th. Well, by that standard, I guess you'd also have to bracket Al Gore with Hitler. If it turned out that some campaign trail bigwig whispered in his ear, Gore's, not Hitler's, that he probably didn't get enough votes to carry Florida in 2000. And Rutherford B. Hayes, who actually managed to reverse the results of the presidential election of 1876 on the basis of claims every bit as dubious as Trump's. Was was he a traitor, too? Or have I missed something? But why quibble about logic? While Raskin was declaring bad political sportsmanship a federal crime, Representative Adam Schiff, would, Schiff, Schiff rather, was concocting an even bolder guilt-by-association theory on ABC where he claimed that the committee's hearings would demonstrate connections between people in Trump's orbit and white nationalist groups that participated in the attacks. Asked how he could prove this, the congressman sniffed, you'll just have to wait till we get to that point of our hearings. Now, Schiff's committee is supposed to have interviewed more than a 1,000 people since last July. But, of course, it's way too early to have any evidence to back up inflammatory accusations, though not too early to air them on national television. He says, almost a year ago, I underlined how popular media had already fabricated the myth of the January 6th coup attempt. Within days of the protest at the Capitol, its participants had been demonized as, take your pick, fascists by PBS, white supremacists by CNN, or a violent mob bent on paralyzing the United States government. That was USA Today. And everyone seemed to accept the dogma that the demonstrators collectively had staged an armed insurrection that only just failed to turn the United States into a right-wing dictatorship. Indeed, typical of the early propaganda was New York Magazine's accusation that the goal of the mob was threatening or killing officials of the U.S. government. The New Republic went so far as to insist that the protesters sought the mass execution of Democratic politicians and prominent liberals. Although, of course, not a single politician was attacked on January 6th, let alone executed. By the way, he points out, for anyone who remembers what really happened, that distinction belongs to Ashley Babbitt, whose name is never mentioned by the January 6th committee or by the popular media breathlessly reporting its every pronouncement. Judging from its opening night, the committee still expects us to believe the protesters who entered the Capitol on January 6th fully, <laughs> fully intended to make corpses and to extinguish American democracy. It doesn't seem to matter that only a handful of them have been accused of possessing weapons of any kind, most of which seem to have been flagpoles. In fact, a grand total of one of those terrorists even thought to bring a gun to the coup and never drew it, according to police. Not to mention that if one riot at the Capitol amounted to an overthrow of the government, you'd probably have to say the same thing about the violent protests that erupted after Donald Trump's election victory in 2016 good point. We'll come back to this commentary in just a few moments. Stay with us.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here to lifesavingfood.com. You know, I think I think this uh, this particular sponsor becomes more important in my mind with every passing day. And I thoughtfully included a link to their website in my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Click on it. Go do a little uh, window shopping, if you will. But I think you'll find things that would bring you peace of mind and perhaps ease your mind during these troubled times. Speaking of troubled times, I'm sharing with you a commentary from Michael Lesher. This is from offguardian.org. Look, I want to make this clear before I go any further, too. I'm not trying to excuse any violence that took place at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th of 2021. I have no doubt there were people who misbehaved. But I am far more concerned about the way that this has been turned into a political cow that is being milked for all it's worth by members of the political establishment and being used to weaponize just about every aspect of the U.S. government against people like you and me who had nothing to do with anything that went on at the Capitol, but nonetheless question whether those people and that political establishment are really operating in our best interests. And that includes having lingering questions about whether or not the election was conducted really on the up and up. It's not so much a matter of, yes, I want to see Donald Trump back in the White House, and, you know, I'm not going to settle down until I get that. I don't know how to break this to you, but Donald Trump alone is not going to solve the problems that we're facing. But if we cannot trust the elections, and in my mind there is enough reason to to doubt the version of events that we're being told took place, then, you know, what can we, what can we do? We, they've effectively removed from us one of our checks on government power. If elections can be manipulated, and, and I believe that uh, this very likely was, then uh, really we're, our, our response is, is being gradually limited. I mean, we've got the ballot box, we've got the uh, uh, soap box, We've got the bullet box. How many of those things do we still have available to us? You see where, where this is going? Not in a good direction. So I bring this up not so much because I think Trump is, is the answer to all of our prayers, but I think that the people who would manipulate the election system for their own gain cannot be trusted. Whether, whether it's Republicans or Democrats or a combination of them, which it appears this January 6th committee is. Back to the article here. You think about uh, the the accusations of violent protests, you know, taking place after an election. Does anybody not remember what happened after Trump was elected in 2016? What about the Democratic members of Congress who tried to prevent the certification of that election by the Electoral College the following January? Oh, no, he links to the article here. Yeah, Michael Betris, uh, he's, he's got the link that will take you right to the story. It happened. Needless to say, such questions aren't being posed by the January 6th committee or people in the press. But after all, he says, the ringmasters have never relied much on facts. They prefer to ply their audience with emotional images and wait for it to salivate like Pavlov's dogs. Thus, nobody on opening night mentioned the old lie about Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick being clubbed over the head with a fire extinguisher by one of the insurrectionists. 
Instead, the committee flashed onto a viewing screen a momentary freeze frame of a policeman, supposedly sick Nick, holding a hand over his face, while a witness gave a description of events that didn't match the picture, but insisted on Sicknick being as white as this sheet of paper as he held his face in his hands. Did the poignant image we saw match the story the committee wanted us to believe? Well, he says it was awfully hard to tell from the ringmaster's own video, and the whole thing was irrelevant in any case. There's no evidence connecting Sicknick's death the next day from natural causes with anything that happened at the protest, but who cares? The concatenation of images, Sicknick's name, a covered face, the words white as paper, rendered truth irrelevant. It worked directly on the emotions of the estimated 19 million viewers for whom the histrionics were designed in the first place. And that was just the beginning. The high point of Thursday night's emotional blitz was the wrenching live interview with Carolyn Edwards, the police witness whose testimony so moved Jody Rudoran. And who, may we ask, is Carolyn Edwards? Well, according to the committee's program notes, Edwards, a Capitol Police officer who looks like an actress and whose background just happens to be a career in public relations, was the first law enforcement officer injured by rioters on January 6th. She also claims to have been an eyewitness to a gruesome war scene as the protest intensified outside the Capitol, which certainly made for some popcorn-munching theater on June 9th. But one might have expected a former New York Times bureau chief, which Rudoran is, to notice at least a few gaps in Edwards' performance. For one thing, why did the committee choose a witness who admittedly saw nothing that happened inside the Capitol? where any actual coup attempt would have necessarily taken place. Why wasn't Edwards mentioned by any of the four law enforcement officers trotted out by that same committee as its star witnesses to anti-police violence during the protest at its first hearing back in July of 2021? At that time, one of those cops insisted he had been tortured by a crowd that tried to kill him with his own gun, claims the committee that has not even attempted to substantiate since then. And why didn't the committee's video document the carnage and chaos in which Edwards said she was catching people as they fell and slipping in people's blood? But given the priorities of Hollywood, the ones that counted, apparently, that blurry apocalypse was more than enough to make the committee's point. In fact, according to Redoran, another set of images at the hearing upstaged even pretty Ms. Edwards. And since you probably can't guess what they were, I'll quote Redoran once again. In some ways, the powerful images of the night were the expressions on Representative Liz Cheney's face. Cheney wore a look of profound disappointment and deep distaste. Now, Michael says, the emphasis is mine. Otherwise, I've quoted Ms. Rudoran verbatim. And her message could hardly have been clearer. Forget the truth, folks. Forget about what really happened to whom. Forget about even that the multimedia presentation was that the committee spent so much time fabricating. Just look at Liz Cheney's face while the Wyoming congressman does all the looking for you. After all, it's entirely too passe to think for yourselves. Today we keep our mouths shut and take our cues from a politician's facial expressions. Goodbye, Democratic government. Hello, Liz Cheney's dyspeptic grimaces. Which brings me to the real point of the January 6th committee proceedings. The partisan aspect of this show trial is too obvious to need emphasis here. But there's a lot more to the theater than an attempt to disqualify Donald Trump from seeking political office, though, of course, that's part of the mix. 
At the bottom, these hearings are a kind of morality play, a public ritual that both invokes divine justice and adumbrates where its verdict will fall. The show trial come exorcism that commenced on June 9th, laden with symbols of threatened virtue and guilt by association, is designed to dramatize in miniature a totalitarian religion that divides absolute good, center liberal government, from absolute evil, grassroots dissent. Now, the Biden administration has already made a point of defining its critics as non-persons, white supremacists, enemies of democracy, the awful unvaccinated. Now, hoi polloi are to be purged altogether of any temptation to challenge the machinations of the ruling class. The ultimate crime of the January 6th protesters was not, in the end, that some of them trespassed on government property or an even smaller number scuffled with police. No, the protesters' unpardonable cry, or offense rather, was to cry, this is our house, as they surrounded the Capitol. That's why they have to be demonized. Because right or wrong in their protest's specific objective, they believed all too sincerely in what Abraham Lincoln said at Gettysburg about government of the people, by the people, for the people. They were traitors because they declared their faith in democracy. This is why the committee's ringmasters are scapegoating every single man and woman who disputed the outcome of the 2020 presidential election as a racist or proto-Nazi, even though only a small faction of the January 6th protesters had any connection to the Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, Aryan Nations, or Three Percenters. That's why the committee is pinning all the blame for the fracas on the few hundred protesters who entered the Capitol while not even trying to challenge federal officials who allowed a bunch, a disorganized bunch of unarmed demonstrators inside what is supposed to be one of the most zealously guarded buildings in America. And this, mind you, despite the fact that General Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, whose consent would have been required for deployment of National Guard or military personnel to the Capitol on January 6th, told his aides, according to a newly published book, that Trump reminded him of Hitler and that he was determined to see Joe Biden installed as president come hell or high water. Now, bear in mind that Time magazine, yes, Time magazine, less than a month after the protest, could already report that a conspiracy between left-wing activists and business titans had managed to ensure that the Trump supporters who converged on the Capitol January 6th were met by virtually no counter-demonstrators who might otherwise have had to share the blame for any mayhem. See, this is why I like to uh, look at some of these outside sources. And by the way, he has links. He backs up what he's saying here. We'll come back and finish this commentary in just a few moments. Please stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, I got to finish up this commentary from Michael Lesher. This is, I know it's very pointed, and I I happen to, to find a lot of it very credible. Now, that doesn't mean you have to agree with me, because it's possible I'm just as wrong as can be. But uh, Michael Lesher's piece on OffGuardian.org about uh, January 6th and the... Uh, the show trial, the movie, and Liz Cheney's dyspepsis really calls into question some of the things that uh, that need to be asked about 
this January 6th committee. And if I'm offending those who are true believers, well, sorry. I'm sure it makes people uncomfortable on the other side as well. But I I agree with this author. I think that uh, Michael Lesher's got the right idea when he says, is it too much to ask of a committee supposedly dedicated to investigating the events of January 6th to hope that it might inquire into things like whether General Milley and some colleagues had anything to do with that conspiracy or whether they deliberately let the protest get just far enough out of hand to publicly discredit Trump and establish a pretext for demonizing all such protests in the future? Lesher says the committee's refusal to ask such questions only underscores its anti-democratic objectives. And he says, please, don't be fooled by the absence of any reference to COVID-19 during the committee's opening act. The COVID coup may not be in the foreground now, but it lurks just behind every surface. The show trial we're watching now was and is the culmination of a process that began in March 2020 when we were told the First Amendment's right to assemble was a suicide pact. And it gathered strength when the governors of some 40 states turned themselves into quasi-dictators. And neither the courts, the press, nor the political opposition did anything to stop them. It took its inspiration from a series of high-profile frauds, from public muzzling to arbitrary confinements to vaccine passports, that for two years or more have swindled citizens of basic freedoms under the false flag of safety. Lesher says its systematic unscrupulousness mirrors the rights-busting propaganda blitz that has made social media off-limits to unwelcome truth-telling and continues to demand that we dose ourselves and our children with untested drugs whose safety our government specifically refuses to ensure. And once again, the January 6th protest, and once the January 6th protest is officially pronounced the work of Satan, as it will be when the committee's work is done, the next step will almost certainly be to take aim at the future of dissent. Now, Justin Trudeau has already given us a taste of that future with the police state tactics he deployed to crush the truckers' protest in Ottawa, scrapping civil rights protections by declaring an emergency, imposing outlandish fines on peaceful protesters, and freezing the bank accounts of anyone who contributed to the demonstrations or who even attended a protest. That's what you need to remember whenever you watch a rerun of the January 6th Committee's multimedia experience. This process isn't over. It has only begun, and it isn't just about some unruly Trump supporters. It's about you. Bingo. This time, the people who milled around in the Capitol lobby on January 6th got locked up without bail and slapped with federal felony charges. Tomorrow? Who knows? Once Big Brother finds out that you once sent $25 to the wrong political cause, you might be the one behind the eight ball, condemned without a trial, unable to buy food or pay the rent. And Washington's next movie might end up featuring you among the enemies of the state. Political theater? Meet theater of the absurd. No. Ritual virtue signaling meet the short road to dictatorship. Again, this is from Michael Lesher. I know that's a lengthy article, but uh, it was so good. I wanted to share every bit of it with you. And I have it linked in the show notes, and I hope you'll continue to check it out and, and follow up. You know, prove him on these things. Follow the link. See if he's telling the truth. Does it add up? The key to take away here is you don't have to be a Trump supporter to understand that it is political dissent that is the target of this January 6th committee. And the big question, and I think we're going to get an answer on this fairly soon because I think uh, the, the 
the powers that be, particularly those on the Democratic side of the aisle, are terrified of what is coming in the midterm elections because a lot of people are fed up. How far would they go to make sure that the wrong voices aren't heard, meaning yours and mine, when we say, get that boot off my neck? All right, let's end on a more positive note. Father's Day was yesterday. Got a great essay here from Annie Holmquist on the best piece of advice or one of the best pieces of advice that a father can give his child. She says, it must be hard to be a father today. Providing, protecting, and guiding a child through life are hard enough tasks in a normal world, but throw in an environment where men are viewed as toxic, diversity is king, and the color of your skin can get you canceled. Men can become women, and women can become men. Pornography is accessible by a little device in everyone's pocket. And the world in general, from food prices to politics, appears to be falling apart. She says, in that world, which is ours, the thought of trying to be a good father seems downright overwhelming. How can fathers raise their children right, particularly when many of today's fathers were raised in fatherless homes? Well, a small bit of fatherly advice given to Ralph Moody in the early 1900s and chronicled in Little Bridges, Father and I Were Ranchers, provides a surprisingly relevant bit of wisdom applicable to our times of diversity, cancel culture, and hardship. Son, Moody's father told him, There are only two kinds of men in this world, honest men and dishonest men. There are black men and white men and yellow men and red men, but nothing counts except whether they're honest men or dishonest men. Some men work almost entirely with their brains, some almost entirely with their hands, though most of us have to use both. But we all fall into one of the two classes, honest and dishonest. Now, Annie Holmquist says, in the eyes of Moody's father, there was never any reason for a person to behave as an entitled victim. Quote, any man who says the world owes him a living is dishonest. The same God that made you and me made this earth, and he planned it so that it would yield every single thing that the people on it need. But he was careful to plan it so that it would only yield up its wealth in exchange for the labor of man. Any man who tries to share in that wealth without contributing the work of his brain or his hands is dishonest, end quote. So Annie Holmquist says, in essence, what Moody's father told him was that color doesn't count in the assessment of a person, nor does economic class. But character, that's what really counts. And character is exactly what a good father will teach his children. But you can't just pass along this little speech to your children about having character and actively doing what's right. You have to live it. You have to live and die someday in correspondence with the God who made you, working with your hands and your brain, being honest, not playing the victim or looking for handouts and favors, but putting your heart and soul into whatever you do and doing it for Him. Everything else will follow naturally and will serve both you and your children well, even in the midst of crazy, unpredictable times. Boy, that is some powerful advice and so timely. Now, Annie Holmquist concludes, Moody's father lived this foundational truth and lived it well, as evidenced by his son's testimony, even though he was only present in his son's life for about a decade, dying early and leaving the young Moody to take care of his mother and siblings. But the many times Moody speaks of what his father did or taught him show the legacy that such a father can leave. The more today's fathers pass along the same legacy to their children, the sooner we will see the craziness in this nation diminish and its dignity rise. I concur, by the way, if you are looking for the kind of books and the kind of stories that can actually build character 
and build the understanding of what it takes to be a good person, the Little Britches series is about as good as you're going to get. And young kids love it. The stories that Ralph Moody tells are, are very captivating. They're something that young minds can get around. And they don't come off as preachy or moralistic. They just, they're just solid life lessons. I mean, I think about this when I think of the, some of the books that are being introduced into school curriculums. Well, in the name of inclusivity, we've got to have this book about uh, these uh, two kids who get together and have gay sex. And, you know, and that's, that's you know, anybody who would protest this being a part of the school library, well, that's just, you know, book burning and totalitarianism. And it's like, really? I know there are three different kinds of stories that we can encounter. There are whole stories, which good is good, evil is evil, and good prevails over evil. Now, there are also broken stories in which good is good, evil is evil, but evil wins. Lord of the Flies is a good example of this one. And it's, it's, it's not so much that it's trying to trumpet that, yeah, you know, evil, is, uh, evil should win. It's to get the reader thinking about what could have been done differently. How would I have solved that problem? And in that sense, those broken stories can actually be kind of a healing story. The third type of story is a bent story in which good is portrayed as evil, evil is portrayed as good, and evil wins, and it's confusing. And I have to think that some of the books that are being promoted to our kids right now probably fall into that category. You don't even have to look to kids' books necessarily to get that. Pornography is a good example of a bent kind of story. Anyhow, I have a link to Annie Holmquist's excellent article about one of the best pieces of advice a father can give his child. Get your hands on little britches. You'll see for yourself. This is The Brian Hyde Show.